Welcome to Supply Chain Central, a podcast made by the Rutgers University Supply Chain Association, delivered to you monthly to keep you up to date on all things supply chain. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ruska Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gallick, and today we have with us Ruben Dario Tarboda. Ruben is currently the CEO of Automation and Validation Solutions, but has previously worked in many other roles. Notably, he has worked over 20 years with Johnson & Johnson in both supply chain and sales roles. Ruben attended Texas A&M for his undergraduate degree in industrial engineering before earning his master's degree in business administration from Duke University. Welcome, Ruben. We're live. So, welcome, Ruben. Welcome, Ruben. Uh, Ruska is very excited to have you on. I'm very excited to have you on as one of my uh, first guests here on the podcast. Uh, I know you've had a great, a great career through different supply chain aspects, different manufacturing aspects. So you're a very awesome and unique guest to have on. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> yeah. So I know uh, you've written uh, for Johnson and Johnson, this, this establishing a career path. Um, so these, great nine tips for anybody looking to get going in their career. What, what just inspired you to write this? Was this something you were assigned or just something you're passionate about? Uh, well, first of all, thank, thanks to Rutgers for allowing me the opportunity to share this experience. Right. And it is one experience, right? It's not, this is not the end. All. You're going to get a, a lot of people going to get a lot of advice from different people across their career. And this hopefully is one input to things they could consider. Uh, it is what, worked out for me now granted I, I recorded this as a journey uh not ever thinking that i would be writing about it right i just know that this is uh, after 35 years what i saw could be successful for anybody right and i the, the the impetus was i was leading the hispanic erg and i and i had a lot of people always want to meet with me and others right i mean but you know because you're in a position of leadership asking uh how did you get so how'd you get successful right and I, I was very blessed right i was able to achieve you know pretty senior rank at j and j at a very young age and and so a lot of people were always intrigued how'd you do that right so it was through people asking me many many times uh, can you tell us your story and i said well a better way to do it is i'll tell you the story but here here's something that you could take with you right here's something that you could reference some of the big you know, checklist person, checklist person. Um, even, even doctors, right? You know, Tungo Aldi, which is a, a wonderful writer. He's a, a surgeon out of Boston. He wrote up this, you know, checklist importance. Uh, it's like why pilots have checklists, right? I mean, it just, so you don't forget, right? And I just thought that this would be a good, you know, nine step checklist that could help people. And that's really the origins of it. It's simple as that. Yeah. And it's, and it's a very good checklist because I, I was looking at it at work and some other co-ops were peering over my shoulder and they said, Hey, <laughs> can you send that to me? And at first I was thinking about keeping it for myself, but I decided you might want everyone to, to take a look. So, um, you know, the first point is understanding your passion. So obviously you've had a lot of different jobs, a lot of different career interests. What, what really drives your passions and where, where can you find what you're really interested in at a young age? Is it, college is it different jobs anything like that yeah you know when you're starting out you find that 
you know, everybody's origin is different, right? It depends on where you're coming from. My motivation was very superficial in the beginning, Brian. I, I mean, I came to this country very poor. I lived in a very small house with a lot of people stuck inside, right? Mm-hmm. One bathroom, uh, one brother, 10 women, right? Cousins and brothers and sisters, right? Typical Hispanic extended family. And I just, uh, and I, and I was a lot of uh, negativity around me, right? Drugs, and prostitution, and it's just the area of Miami, Florida, where I grew up in. So for me, it was really about, you know, getting money and, 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 and trying to be successful getting out of that rut and plus taking care of my parents and my, my siblings, right? Because I was the first one out of um, grad to graduate. So it, it was superficial in the sense that it was, you know, getting the hierarchy of needs from a Maslow standpoint, uh, that bought that first tier, right? It's, you know, food and eating well and trying to just have a better life. But as you find, as you move in your journey of a career, you know, you start to ask what makes you happy. And, and it really even goes beyond that, right? Because you could have a passion, but it's, it's got to be with other, other elements that are important, right? Like, yeah, I have a passion towards this, but, you know, can I make money by following that passion? Can it solve a problem that the world needs, right? Um, when you start to look at, you know, a confluence of these circles kind of intersecting, um, then, then you start to really get better definition of what, you know, what you want to do, right? And, and for me, it was a journey of, I started out in manufacturing. You know, I graduated with an engineering degree. So you start out in manufacturing. I love to solve problems. No matter what job I've ever had, I love to solve problems. And then as you rotate, I'm a big person in rotating, right? It's, you get all these experiences because it helps you think differently. That's really the, the concept of diversity of thought, right? Getting these experiences and, and blending it with your background. And then after that, as you keep moving, now you jump functions, right? I, I went into materials management and after that into finance after I got my master's. And then you start to you know think about other parts of the value chain of a big company that intrigue you, right? I'm always very curious about learning and, and, and learning different aspects. But no, no matter what, it was all to solve a problem and add value to the company, right? And society. And as you get even older than that, then it becomes on how you can help people with what you've learned. Because uh, it, it, what matters in life is really who you help, right? I mean, yeah, you can have a status and you can have the title, but hopefully your listeners will, will you know, really take that to heart that when you help somebody, there's nothing more satisfying than being able to do that, right? And, and that came later in life for me, um, only because of where I started from. But once I got that this is really what, you know, what can be done, then, then that's what makes you happy, right? And I'm able to do that. I mean, supplier diversity did a lot of that for me, right? When I was able to lead that program to really awaken to wealth creation within communities, right? Across a multitude of groups that are underserved um, or even just leadership development, sitting with people and helping them, helping them realize what they could to consider, right? There's a leader in... Um, in procurement now, there's many leaders I had the good fortune of mentoring that they're, they're vice presidents now. And I will tell you, I remember mentoring some of the VPs right now in procurement that uh, had no idea to go into this part of, of procurement, right? They were, they were maybe in engineering. And then I had, you know, given the advice, you know, I think you could really do marketing procurement really well. And, and they, they thought I would never have gone through that had you not, you know, given me that little bit of a nudge. So that's, I get enjoyment just out of getting people to realize what they don't know, right? Through my experience. And a lot of it's just, you know, 
asking questions of getting their curiosity spurred. So I know this is a long answer on this number one point, but it's, you know, passion is one aspect of it, but keep in mind that there's other bubbles that you have to keep in mind to that. Luckily for me, healthcare was my passion because I was really overweight as a kid. And I was able to make money out of helping out in healthcare, in engineering, solving problems. So I really used my degree well, and I was able to help people through leadership development. So I hit a lot of points just being in one in, in one company. Yeah. And then as a sub point, you, you said, what do you want to, or where do you see yourself in five, 10 or 15 years? Um, right. Did you think you had like a crystal clear idea or was it more just like a general aim? Like I generally I want to be working in healthcare and generally I want to be problem solving or was it like, yeah, I, I want to be vice president or president of this company. Yeah. Well, you know, when you start getting some tinklings of success, of course, you know, ambition, you know, and drive and it hits in. So, I mean, I wanted to be a president, right? I mean, that's kind of what, uh, what drove me, right? I wanted that success and that, that prestige that came with presidency. But as I kept moving through my career, you find out that you could still achieve a senior level position inside of a big company and still meet, you know, your, what you define as success. It doesn't have to be a president, right? Uh, back in my, you know, generation, you know, to, to run a company was very successful, right? But when I was able to say, you know, running procurement for, you know, a uh, $50, 60000000000 billion company when I was at SF with J&J was actually, no, they were close to 90 now. But, so I left uh, in 2021 or 2020 and they were, I think, $85 billion. But I had a third of that through medical devices and procurement. So that's that's a lot of spend, $10 billion of spending, but a lot of responsibility, 300 people around the world. So, you know, having that kind of, you know, responsibility, uh, I would have never said to you, I graduated out of Texas A&M and I want to be a CPO. That was never in my mind. It was always to, you know, achieve a commercial success. And then as you move in your career, you find out, wait a second, this would interest me too, right? And it doesn't have to be necessarily that one track because life is truly, you're going down a river and you get presented with many cross points and say, well, let me try this one for a little while. And as long as you kind of know that which way to come back, if that doesn't work out, then that's a good thing for you to, you know, kind of uh, look at, take it, take advantage of if it comes to you. Yeah. And then moving on, I guess to your second point, you say, be great in your current role. How do you find yourself like keeping yourself motivated through every career, especially, you know, yeah. if, if, if some roles tend to drag on more than others and tend to be more challenging and maybe a little more loath, loathsome than others. So how do how do you stay great, perhaps? Right, right, right. Well, um, first of all, you have to know what great is, right? So you start to look at role models of who's been successful in those roles. Ideally, and I talk about this in, in, in a later, later part, of you can find a good mentor that you can align yourself with to actually, you know, model what they did for success. And then literally take, and I include this in the reference in the document, um, most companies have a document that showcases what great success is, you know, what's considered, you know, superior performance, what's considered above average, you know, average, and then, of course, below average. I always wanted to be in that Excel, Excel, Excel area, right? I, I believe in that concept of, um, you know, you can't get to perfection, but you can always work towards it, right? And that's that was my mentality for every job I, I took. And I always try to take 
a job and make it better. So if I knew where the bar was of excellence, then I said, okay, I know what I got to go for now. And then try to oversee, figure out how I can stretch that bar. Now, if you run into a situation where the job starts to get mundane and stuff, you got to look at other ways to make, to understand the true value of that position, right? You can take an analytics position and strictly say, well, I'm just crunching out numbers. But if you start to think about the proactive output that that analytics can give you to a stakeholder, now you're having any customer service oriented type of role, right? Now you're, and you can influence the value of that information, which could lead to knowledge, which insight, which can lead to knowledge. Having that kind of mentality is how you keep yourself motivated, right? And then, and then of course, you know, you're not going to be in that role forever, right? If you have a good mindset of, and I, I say this in one of the other points, right? Never take a job for that next position. You want to take it for the one after that one, right? So if you know that you're preparing yourself for that next position, then, 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 you know, make sure that you showcase the excellence of what you're currently doing and building those skills that will make you successful as a great candidate for that next position. So the, the key is, you know, never start to think of the job as, uh, I just follow the job description. You always yeah. want to challenge yourself. Am I truly adding value in the way a stakeholder would see the value in? And, I, and, and if you really know the end customer, you can actually work your way back to see how my job is impacting that end customer. That's a connection of dots. That's where supply chain is really good because you know you can really connect your way all the way down to the patient. So it's just thinking through whatever division you are, whether it be consumer, medical device, whatever. What yeah. that role is connecting all the way to the end customer. Do you have um, like a good example you could share with us of yourself or another who had uh, taken a role with maybe X, Y, Z responsibilities and kind of grew that role to attain other responsibilities and excel in that way? So if you think about when I had, um, yeah, I do. So when I was in consumer, I remember the role I took was a logistics director position. So this is the early days of having teams in consumer. Right. I think we had uh, 13 teams. We had like five in grocery, Walmart, of course, Kmart. Uh, this is before Costco. And, but my job was pretty much delivering product over to the customer. Right. That, as long as I had an on time success rate, pretty much. And, you know, I, and I was able to cut costs and wherever I could. The job would have been considered very, very successful. I took it a step further and saying, okay, you know, I did planning for a long time. And I also, one of the things that frustrated me, I never understood why forecasts move up and down, right? It just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Particularly when you look at point of sale. Point of sale, the way people buy stuff is pretty much flatlined. Maybe one or 2% growth, depending on if there's advertising point. But for a line that looks like this, by the time I got it in, in logistics or even in manufacturing, it looked completely like a zigzag. So I am, okay, why is that happening? Well, I was able to understand true volatility at point of consumption. And I started working with the customer using that demand planning skills on the true, on the true reason for an out-of-stock at, at shelf. And because the immediate, you know, assumption when you, a retailer doesn't get product is, well, that's the manufacturer, right? They're, it's their reason. But that's not true, right? When, I, when you were able to say, I'm shipping you a hundred. There's no issues on supply and I can still get out of stocks that are around 
you forget that there's a, a distance between the moment I ship and the moment it gets on that shelf. And when I started to really understand that, those processes, now I was really going all, all the way, last 10, it's the last mile is what they call it. Uh, you begin to learn a lot about what truly caused an out of stock. Well, that was a revelation back then, right? And mm -hmm. I got a lot of salespeople to wake up to, wait a second, we're not the reasons why this has happened. Retailers have got some issues too. We can help with guiding them on their own logistics problems. So Brian, when you think about what that led to, it opened up a position in sales that most people at that point in my career would never have gotten, which was to run the entire target business in sales for one of our divisions of personal products, which is actually funny because I never thought I would wake up selling sanitary protection and pads <laughs> and tampons and <laughs> KY lubricants and stuff guys just don't ever think about, right? But I mean, yeah. it was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. But again, I took, if you think about the role, it was just there to get stuff on time and make sure that I wasn't, you know, had a good routine. We were able to take it all the way to something that sales really cared about, right? And the customer really cared about. Nothing is more enjoyable to solve a problem that your customer loves, that sales loves. And by the way, you're also making manufacturing more efficient, right? Because they're not having to airship and, you know, rush these orders because the customer saying, wait a second, I need to get my product. But you had it sitting somewhere in their own supply chain. So it was extremely eye-awakening for the corporation. Yeah, and I think corporations are starting to come around to that now, that sort of like cross-functional team that includes sales right. and supply chain and, and finance. So you were really kind of on the cutting edge there, creating yeah. your own own job, your own sector. Well, it's at the interface where things tend to break down, right? You'll see that in any job you take. is where things between functions, between customer and supplier, it's always at the interface where there's weakness. And that's yes. the goal is to try to tighten those things and put better processes around them. Yeah, sometimes, especially in very large corporations, you can you can feel siloed, you know, finance is over here, supply mm -hmm. chains over here and sales are over here and they never talk. Um, but I think, I think corporations are starting to really focus on agility. And I think that's kind of what you're alluding here is, the, the cross-functional ability to understand what the customer needs and how we're providing that is a very cutting edge supply chain idea. So that's, that's, that's a good insight there. Um, following up on uh, your third bullet point, it says follow a winner, follow a winner, find a mentor or join a affinity group. So what, right. what kind of, attributes do you look for in a winner or a mentor? Uh, you know, listen, charisma is, is a hard thing to point out, you know, um, to say that, you know, I, I just have good chemistry with somebody. This is going to vary for different people, right? A lot of it's the makeup of your personality, right? If you were to do a Myers-Briggs or whatever personality test, you know, you know, you tend to associate with like kind, right? So if you can find a mentor that you have charisma or chemistry with that, it, by the way, is also somewhere you want to go, it, you know, connect up with that person, right? And say, and then offer something, right? Offer something that would make the mentor more successful because then it's a give and take, right? It's the reciprocity. And that's the beautiful thing about it, right? So I always look at, hey, where do I want to go? What would be interesting? target people right you do this in sales all the time supply chain people never understand this because they're never selling right but in sales you do this all the time who's your prospect and your customer how can i get to it well linkedin now it's so easy 
I didn't have this back then, you know? But nowadays you can look at who knows who, how can I get to this person, right? How can I be influential? Does that person sit in the ERG or affinity group as they were known back then? You know, and, 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 and offer to be a participant in something they're leading. That's how you build relationship. Listen, I am not a golfer, right? In my era, golf was everything. People were trying to push me to play golf and I hate the sport, right? I just thought, I'd rather weight lift or I'd rather bike ride or nowadays is pick a wall because that's, that's the, 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 the trending sport. But uh, I was never somebody to spend, eight, you know, hours on a course. But yet that was where people met. And, you know, and then, and of course, you you know, you have your conferences and stuff like that. But generally, there was always a gout, uh, an outing of golf. So there's got to be other ways of doing this, right? And the beauty of a company that has an ERG is that you have senior leaders there. And they can be influencers for your career. And, um, you know, I was blessed enough to be very close to our CEO, prior CEO, Alex Korsky, and then that entire executive board because of supplier diversity. It did not come out through my procurement, uh, even though I know the two of them are tied, but it came through the diversity channel. I mean, I, this was all later for me, right? I, I didn't join an ERG saying that that was going to be, but I thought about it. I'm like, wouldn't it be great if you could? Because then it was like, what a best way to try to meet somebody in a you know, kind of a, a natural way instead of it being a a forced, you two will get together and you're going to help each other out, which, hey, listen, that can work too. But I'd rather it to be more natural or, you know, you're on a committee and you're helping people out. And that's how board of directors work. You know, I mean, when you're on a board, it's the network you build. And and Ola did a lot for me, right? Ola is a Hispanic organization at J&J. And uh, I got to meet a whole host. Uh, got pretty close with Russ Deo, our chief legal counsel at the time. And of course, I, he saw what I could do, which he permeated out to the executive committee. And it was just wonderful, right, when you have other people talk for you. So finding a winner is just and a mentor is just trying to find somebody that can be where you want to go or somebody that can be influential for you. And what you find is, you know, you look for people that have been successful. Who's achieved status in that company that can, you know, help you in a way that doesn't seem so forced? Yeah. The more natural it is, the better. Yeah, supplier diversity conferences, I guess, are really helping people's careers big ones, out. Big yeah, ones, big that's, ones, yeah. That's where I bumped into you, and I guess that's where <laughs> you had met Alex. Um, so <laughs> to the listeners, when, when Rutgers hosts another supplier diversity conference, Go. you should be there. <laughs> yeah. All right, moving on to this uh, fourth bullet point. Never take a job without knowing how it will prepare you for your future job. And you talked about mm-hmm. this. Uh, a little bit, maybe 10 minutes ago, how you should always look for the job after your job. But that's right. Do, do you, do you find that in your career, you kind of made your own job or that you looked, um, I don't know if you had like LinkedIn or something similar like that, that is a job I'm aspiring to. So um, I was fortunate in my mentor and i had many mentors but i had one really great one mike allen he's actually retired he's living the life in uh, in florida but he always gave me opportunities hey would you be interested in this i mean they came to me right but there was many times where mike wasn't close to me anymore when i went to sales i had to kind of find my own mentors right different different completely different group of people but when i had the need to build my own network outside of who was taking care of me, I started to understand, well, where is it that I want to go if I apply for this job, right? Because the worst thing you want to do is just go in there and say, well, what's it, if it's not leading you to anything, then it's, is it really worth 
moving into that unless you have some longer reason you know longer rate maybe three jobs later and you have that kind of foresight but um if, if you always know where you want to go generally brian it can open you it can keep you focused right because again if you have a you know a job that's not as exciting or didn't turn out to be what you want it to be as long as you're building a skill set that will make you viable for that next role then just know that success is part of the learning process. They call it cycles of success. You have to be there a certain amount of time before you consider deemed competent in that skill. Um, you're, you're still building skills, right? So the, the, the advice I just want to give people is don't just apply for things, right? There's, there's got to be a reason why you want that next job because it should lead to something that's going to prepare you greater for the future. As I was acquiring skills, when I jumped around, it was always into, is this going to help me get to that president's level or some senior level example? And the guidance I had back then was I had to be multifunctional, a lot of different groups, right? And not just supply chain. I had to be multinational, work in a different country, and I had to be multi-sector, which is I had to have consumer, pharma, and medical device. So that was my mantra. Right. I got to get those skills. Can I get that skill through this next job? Because if I'm staying in one sector, probably not that smart. Now, that, that was my era, right? Nowadays, with, particularly with J&J changing or any organization, right? You have, what is it? What are the characteristics that make people successful? And is that job going to give you that check mark? Because if it is, then you should seriously consider it and then apply and then go for it with all your heart. Yeah. So do you think, being highly specialized or, you know, more of like a, a jack of all trades is better off for your career in the long run? So I've had, I've had that question a lot, right? It depends on where your heart is. I vacillated between supply chain and procurement, excuse me, uh, supply chain and, and commercial. Okay. And a lot of my jobs were back and forth in, in, in the sectors. Now, the good of that is you become pretty well knowledge, you build your network and you become pretty well on general management. The bad of it is that you have to stay really in touch with your mentors because there will be times where maybe that move isn't getting you what you thought and maybe you're stuck or, you know, there wasn't an out. So I remember, here's a perfect example, right? When I was in sales for... Uh, for a period of time, I said, you know, I want to get back into supply chain. My, at that point, all the leadership of the supply chain that I came from was gone. So when I came back trying to reintroduce myself, they were telling me I had to start from the beginning, like, you know, a couple of lower levels. And I'm like, you know, 20, 24 years of the company, I'm like, I'm just not willing to do that, right? I mean, something's not right with our succession planning systems. And that's the learning, right? The learning is whatever organization you are, just keep in mind if there's a new player in there that, and you've built no relationship with this individual, that, that you can get that kind of response, right? So when you say, is it better to specialize? I think it's always good to have a strength and then have, you know, you know kind of your, your likes. But in, beyond the strength, it's more important to have that network. That network needs to be kept warm, Right. Because then if something doesn't go right, they know who you are. I've seen many people leave, for example, finance, going to procurement and then come back to finance after being gone 10 years. That person that that happened to is very high level in finance right now as of today at J&J. 
person was smart, kept in touch with all of his finance friends. They, so there was still a network for him to go back to. So I, I think it's, again, keep your core, your specialty, diversify through these, it's kind of like in school, right? You have your degree, but you have electives. You, but in this case, you want to have a network on top of that covers that meshes all that together. Um, I think that's probably the better answer for people because then it's like, if you specialize too much, you can be tunnel visioned. I mean, uh, tunnel, yeah. you know, labeled, <clears throat> tunnel labeled. And that's something you do not want, right? I'd rather have somebody that, you know, is open to diverse, you know, how different I think that that would be more valuable. Yeah. So I guess one more follow-up question to this bullet point is if you're looking for that job after that job, what are some tips you have to not get stuck? You know, some people will kind of get drawn into the trap. Like I like this job so much. I like, I never want to leave. And then after five years, they haven't grown because they've stayed in the same position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a consequence to your decisions, right? Just know around the three the four-year mark, you probably have learned most of what you're going to learn in that job, and you have to consider moving. The only times I would say don't do that, unless you really, really want to stay in a specialty area, but just know that that's going to you're going to have to you're li you're limiting your options, and that's a consequence of your decision, right? Um, I think early on, I think it's always good to build that hardcore base. But then as you start to get into those, because what you don't want to do is be in one function, get to a level of senior director and then want to move somewhere. Nobody's going to look at you. They're going to look at you as that's all you've done. And I know that sounds terrible, but unless you're willing yeah. to have a mentor that'll take a risk on you, it's not going to happen, right? When I was able to move, actually, when I moved into sales, I was a director in supply chain. I took a step back to be a senior manager. It was the right move for me. They didn't, you know, they, we were, I wasn't making so much money that I, you know, the pay scales were different. It, it, there was plenty of room for me to continue to grow as a senior manager as it was for an early director. Best move in my life because that got me to my procurement VP in commercial faster than I would have ever anticipated, right? People were shocked when I got a VP job at my age. So I, a lot of it came from the fact that I took that backward step in, in sales. So you know, I, I think a, a lot of these type of things, when you do feel stuck, keep the network alive, keep building skills, right? Because that opportunity will come. And what do they say is the definition of luck, uh, Ryan? Uh, when what, hard work meets uh, opportunity. Opportunity. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if you're really prepared, then when that right thing comes knocking, you're ready for it. But you got to really know what that job is looking for, right? And if you have a mentor already there, they can fight for you. And then now you have got a lot of your, your planets are being aligned, right? So, but sometimes people, particularly with the younger generations, they think, oh, I'm going to pick up the job in 12 months, in 18 months. It takes you a good six just to get ready for the job. And then people, I remember my last job, I had a lot of younger employees. They were like, I'm ready to move after a year. I'm like, no, you're not, right? You're not ready, right? So maybe they were able to find somebody to take them, but then they get stuck because they've moved so fast and they haven't really mastered anything. So you have to keep in mind the cadence of 18 to 24 months is a good time to say, I'm going to start looking. Uh, but you don't want to be in a job for five years. Uh, now, the caveat to that is if you're in a senior position, because the more senior you get, the more specialized you are, right? And it's harder to... 
if you're a VP to move every 18 months. They're not going to do that. Typically, they'll want to keep you there for about four to five years. But by that time, you're older in your career, more experienced. Um, you know, there's the, the, the propensity to want to decide to, I got to move every, it's less because you've achieved already success. Yeah, that's great. Um, moving on to your fifth bullet point here, you say, understand what it takes to be great in the next job. So I like this caveat, the next job, because I think sometimes it's pretty easy or not easy, but it's easier to tell what, what it takes to be great in your current role. But looking ahead, maybe two or three years to understand what you need to learn in this job to be great in the next job is sometimes murky waters, to say the least. Yeah. 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 And it could also wake you up to say, OK, that's something that I want to deal with. Because right? sometimes the job looks attractive from the outside but once you begin to think of it it's like okay maybe that won't make you happy right so so that's why you just have to keep in mind to be successful you got to know what what excellence is over there and say okay does that fit what i want to do right i'm going to be happy doing that because while there may be panache and status with that it may not be i mean be careful with what you ask for i guess is what i'm saying right yeah so what are like based off this question what are some ways you've gain skills for your next great job? Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, right? And I hate to be so scant and skeleton about it, but it is get the job description from that next job and find out who's done it well. It's that simple, right? And if you can get that, then you, you're a leg up on top of everybody else. Because when those job opportunities come, you've already been knowing what to prepare for, right? So this is no different than you know, doing calculus when you're in high school and then you go to college and you're really, really prepared for, you know, handling a college level calculus class. Very similar, right? You know, just start to understand what it takes to be successful in that role. And you don't have to pick up every skill, pick up one or two to say, okay, I can do that on the side, right? And um, that's why I, I love when functions can give employees an opportunity to do these side projects you know, it's part of their, you know, their day. Um, and I know I did that with a lot of my employees. I let them go to other functions and do a project. So I gave in a little bit of time. They spent a lot of time on their own, right? So it was a give, you know, if I gave 5% of their day and they put in the rest of it, they were able to participate in projects. And most times than not, they were offered a job in that new place. Because they had already seen, the, the, the hiring manager had already seen, got a taste of exactly what these people can do. And it's like, I can see that person on my team. It, it's like an audition. It's awesome, right? So that's what I mean about understand what it takes to be great in that next job with requirements. But then also, if you could be a part of a committee or something like that, join and, and volunteer to help somewhere yeah. else. And if that's your mentor, then now you got a lot of things working for you. Yeah. Was there ever a time where you maybe you were looking to get a job or you were, you had gotten the job and you were like, my skills are not what they need to be to perform at the highest level that I'm at now or that I'm in this role for? So when I went into sales, it was an eye awakening moment for me. It's such a different playground, right? They speak differently. They use different language what they consider successful. I mean, I just wasn't ready for it. So uh, I had to work three times as hard to really get the lingo of what it takes. Just the concept of market share and 
and, and, and thinking about year over year sales and 12 months trailing sales. And these are just words that become so apparent to you when you're in the field, right? It's these natural conversation points. TAM, I mean, what's a TAM, right? Total market, you know, area, to, total available market, right? How big is the market, right? And what percentage do I have that? In supply chain, you have other sets of measures and, 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 and what they consider to be your operating principles and measures. And sales are completely different. And I just wasn't ready for it, right? So I wish I had done maybe a project beforehand, but the job came so quick to me. It's like, wow, this was a great opportunity. I'm going to take advantage of it. But I, I, I had to really hunker down and learn on my own time without, you know, training was okay. Uh, the person I was replacing was actually <laughs> leaving the company and they gave me kind of like a high five in the in the parking lot. <laughs> so so it wasn't that... Um, wasn't great right and i made mistakes i made yeah. mistakes the first year i wasn't hitting my sales numbers and then i've never been in a function that by far to me is the most accountable function i think in the company and the reason why i say that is because you can't you get a number and you got to hit it and brian there is no reason why you you can't rationalize your way on why you don't hit it other jobs inside of a company, there's a lot of rationalization that goes on. Well, I couldn't do it because this person didn't give me this, or I didn't get it because of this, or, you know, my dog ate my homework, whatever, whatever the reason <laughs> is, right? In sales, you get a number and you own it. And that is it. There's no discussion, right? If you're not hitting it, hitting it well, then that's your performance. And uh, outside of a COVID situation that you can explain that, you know, that's your reasoning, which even then they would say, well, what'd you do to try to mitigate that, right? I mean... Because you're accountable to the performance of the company. If you don't get your sales, everything kind of jars off of that, right? You can't employ, you can't spend money. I mean, budgets have to be cut. So you're, it's a lot of responsibility and you own the numbers. So that was another thing I wasn't really ready for, right? And I remember my VP of sales telling me, because I came in with every excuse in the book on why I wasn't hitting them. <laughs> my buyer hates me. My buyer never returns my calls. And she looked at me and she said, you know, Ruben, I pay, I pay you to sell. And if you can't figure out how to sell, I will blank. You can fill in the blank, find somebody who will. <laughs> like, oh my God. Okay, so for, I get it. I get it. I, you know, this is first, I woke up to what accountability really is. And I will tell you that I ended the year 30% up from the year ago. Uh, and they were actually telling me to shut it off. I'm like, no, you, you guys gave up on me in October. And to prove to you, I can sell. An operations person can sell. So, and they said, well, you know that you're going to have to annualize that number next year. So it's got to be greater than the 30 you're giving me now. And I said, that's fine. I'll figure it out. But that was a marked difference than every excuse in the book on why I can't hit this number and how hard it was. And it's, you follow? I mean, it yeah. was, it was a, so, trying to get up and wake up, right? So how did you learn so quickly? I mean, it's not an easy function to so, jump from. Some of it was just applying what um, they had taught me. And I, you know, I just, my muscles weren't ready to handle that kind of behavior. You know, they teach you things, but you get like fed like a fire hose, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so you're only really retaining maybe 10 to 20%. Well, some of it was dusting that off and waking up to it. The biggest thing was how I can use the YJ portfolio in cross-promote. Right. So here's a perfect example. And they don't give you market research to do this. Right. But this is what I had to do to get creative. Right. So 
I had a promotion set up for the October timeframe and it was uh, with the sanitary protection line. So at that time we had the fastest selling thong black panty liner. Okay. So this was developed in Columbia. Um, it's interesting product, right? Because it's like, wow, it's, 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 it's a very small package, mm-hmm. but it's sold, you know, it's it sold like milk in a, in a store. So I had traffic coming to that location. I also found out that um, that we were coming out with KY warming, which was a kind of an intimacy enhancement type of thing. I mean, JJ never really got into that business, but it was about to launch. And I also found out through market research and speaking to people that worked at Victoria's Secret, I had to go to a mall and actually interview people, right? <laughs> to say, what do you buy during these periods of four times a year where, because I was managing family planning, four times a year where, um, you know, that family planning condoms and you know, all the things that you do to start up a family um, does well. And I said, okay, during these particular periods where there's a lot of, like a better word, activity in the country going on, uh, what, what sells? And what they told me was a lotion and lingerie, lotion and lingerie. So I was like, wait a second, I got the fastest panty liner going on. I got a, a, um, a, a lubricant that is meant to be used, you know, during these periods. And then I also have a lingerie department in Target. So I combined the three of them. And I will tell you that we had our, I was breaking records in the lingerie department most ever. So people were like, I cannot, what did you do? How does a health and beauty aid get me to have triple digit sales? They couldn't keep things in stock. And ever since then, that's the kind of creativity you get into to think about innovation and sales, right? You start to combine things that don't make sense and then put them in a, in, in a period of time where people will buy because, right, I was leveraging one of these four times a year where the country is very active and, and <laughs> you know what I mean, and, and, um, and family planning. So that that is the kind of mindset that I had to get my sales, you know, you know in that double digit area. Yeah, that is some revolutionary problem solving, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, oh, especially since this is not my area, right? I mean, you yeah. have to go sit in, in front of a Victoria's Secret and ask the store manager, can I sit here? I don't want you to think I'm some kind of weird person. And, and, and did market <laughs> research from that, and they were very open to it. They were like, oh, you're with J&J? Yeah, sure, no problem. So that's yeah. how I got my research. Yeah, I mean, now we had our market intelligence from a third party, you know, like served to us yeah. on a platter. So I, didn't I can't have time believe. For that. <laughs> I know you had to go out and do your own, which is go do my own. Yeah, <laughs> an of American Minneapolis. <laughs> uh, moving on to the sixth point here, you wrote. We kind of talked about this, but you said rotate jobs every third, three to four years, keeping yourself yes. multifunctional, uh, changing companies or sectors and then establish that thirst for learning. Um, what, what like drove your thirst for learning, you know, to, to change careers, to change functions? It was just being curious. I love asking why. It's that simple, right? I, I, I love to learn. You'll find this because you're a young guy, right? That as you get older, as long as you have thirst to learn, you will stay young. And I've always had that throughout my entire career. Right. So about the three to four year mark is when I felt like it was a good time for me to move. I had acquired the skill. Uh, I can prove competency. And um, it was just a good cadence for me on rotations. Right. I, I grew up that way. 
Sometimes it was faster. Um, sometimes it was 18 months. I don't like that. That's too soon. But, you know, when it gets started to get to that, you know, 24 to 36 month area, I was like, okay, let me start thinking about this next role. But um, it was just really just asking why and, and, and having a curious nature of how does this link into what I do and what I've done and, and how can I continue, continue to add value to the corporation based on where the, our executive leaders were going and what they were talking about, right? So if you're curious, you can ask really great questions and then you know, find yourself something that you get behind on, right? And get passionate with. But yeah. I think you know, diversity of experience for me is a way to get curious. And that's why I wanted to rotate every three to four months, every three to four years, excuse me. Yeah. And you're a, a little bit later in your career than me, obviously. So you kind of have that that chance to kind of choose what you do a little bit more. Is there ever a time like recently or maybe in the past 10 or 15 years when you were like, I'm bored um, and I want to find something that I'm really curious about to pursue? So, yeah, I mean, when I was the vice president of medical device uh, for procurement, I had been in the job seven years and it was good time for me to, to, to move, right? That, that's a long time. That's the longest job I've ever had, but I understood the nature of the responsibility I had. And plus the job had changed many, many times. So it was through, you know, reorganizations and transformations. And so it wasn't necessarily the same job, but at some point I had done enough of procurement and I wanted to get back into the sales area. So, yeah, for sure. It, you know, I started to, you know, make sure that I stayed in touch. You know, most of what I was doing in procurement was supporting commercial anyway. So it was an easy fix for me to go to one of my leaders and say, um, love to work for you. You've seen me support you in this area. They were a company group chair. Of course, it was welcoming, right? I mean, it's like, hey, I'll definitely consider you, right? So for sure, the answer is yes. Uh, there are times where you start to feel like I'm hitting a plateau. Again, that's why I will always say between the 24 to 36 month mark, start your, your kind of your inquisitive nature where you want to go and start to prep up the job description who is over there because then you can start slow slow rolling your way to that change yeah um and then moving on to to point number seven you wrote relentlessly seek out feedback 360 feedback is there ever a yeah. time where you've gotten feedback that perhaps you didn't want to hear but was really beneficial to you and was there ever a time where yeah. you got feedback that you considered probably not actually the best feedback. So yes and yes, right? When I was early in my career, one of the problems I had is I had a huge ego, right? I've been very successful, got promoted really quick, um, had my mentor constantly looking out for me. You get an ego, man. And um, I was told I got a new boss. I was told that I wasn't as great as I and it was more on the, on the qualitative side. I was kind of rough with people. A lot of it's the way I was brought up, right? I was just too mean to people. And if you were somebody that would work your butt off for me, then of course I was behind you, right? But if you're somebody that kind of like had a family and I was single then, right? So it's like work was everything for me. But if you had a family and you worked on first shift and you kind of eight to five person, I had no time for you, right? So you have to find out that you have to work with all kinds of people, right? And not everybody's going to be at your speed. Well, I had a lot of issues with those 
And I got feedback that I was too rough with them. I didn't listen. And I had all these issues. That was terrible. I was really, really terrible. So I got sent to charm school early in my career and had to have strangers tell me, and they call it charm school, but basically it's personality development one <laughs> one right? And of course, I was furious, right? I mean, who wants to hear that they have a personality quirk, right? That was, but it was a gift. It was a gift that to this day I still use. Uh, I'm a better person. I think I'm a better father. I'm a better husband because I got all that feedback. Right? And I was really terrible when I was in my early 20s. Right? I was just so pig-headed and egotistical. So uh, it woke me up to listening. And, you know, when emotional intelligence became a word, became something that was like the it word, you know, are you emotionally mm -hmm. intelligent? A lot of my bosses at that time said, you know, you have that at so young an age. How did you get that? And it came from that experience in my 20s. Yeah. So I was very fortunate that they sent me there. So that was one time I didn't want to hear it. I didn't agree with it. But it became the best thing ever for me, right? Um, you know, so, so you know, yeah, it, it, that, that really taught me to really appreciate feedback as a gift. So I, the advice here is, it's like when you're in the gym, you know, and you're lifting. <clears throat> you cannot be a good judge of, your form and how well you're lifting and whether you're doing it right. It's good to have a coach, a personal trainer, or somebody that can just say to you, hey, this is more effective, right? And you start to include that with how you eat and how you sleep and all these mm -hmm. other things, right? But when you're in the gym, specifically around working out, it's always great to have somebody tell you that from the outside. And when you get feedback from people, especially when you're young, it's a gift because then you're able to really say, God, I want to correct that. Now, some people, unfortunately, don't listen, right? Yeah, yeah, they listen, but it's not important enough. Well, in my case, it was important enough. I wasn't going to have a career at J&J if I didn't change. So I was so bad with people. So, you know, you have to kind of wake up to, it's such a gift to get feedback and to welcome it. And the best thing to do that, to welcome it, is to invite it, right? So if you ask people, I mean, don't be an egg about it, but I mean, if you're asking people or take the instruments, then listen to what you're getting and, and really internalize it. Because I think what happens is over time, the softer skills is where you're going to be more successful in. Not necessarily yeah. how smart you are, right? Those don't do as well. It's how you get along with people and how you influence people. And that is learned through these qualitative skills that feedback really sharpens over time. So um, it's hard to do that when you're young, right? Because you just have the, you know, all this dopamine and, you know, you're kind of motivated <laughs> and you want to really do well and you have this... You know, um, in my case, it's just an overload of testosterone. I wanted to break every record and, you know, be the best. And, but you start to stop, you know, stop back and, and really pay attention to how what people think about you. Because that could be a, a career derailer. You don't correct it early enough. Yeah. I think uh, you're kind of alluding to uh, your eighth point here, which is understands understanding the concept of pie, uh, which is obviously yeah. that performance image exposure. And that right. I know uh, we still talk about this at J&J &J to this day, actually, and how your performance is only 10% of how you're viewed and those soft yeah. skills, that qualitative skill make up for the other 90%. So, you know, yeah. did, I, I don't know if you can't, were around when this was implemented or did you work on implementing this at J&J? &J? So I was in the early part of that concept being introduced, right? This was in 2007 where it, I first saw it, right? Now, remember, I graduated in 1986. So, 
mean, that that's a lot. That's a long runway of a career before you ever get introduced to this, right? And I always thought performance was the number one thing. In fact, there was actually a panel. I remember there were senior vice presidents up, and they asked them individually, you know, what's more important, PI or or uh, E, and they all said Pete, right? Mm. Which is what I would have said too. But then you, they went through the education of that's not true, right? You know, the I and the E is what really has gotten you to where you got to. And they would not admit that because they, they had forgotten that it took somebody to, you know, open the door for them or the fact that they had a pretty good image um, through exposing themselves to people that they got that opportunity, right? Because people thought highly of them, right? So performance gets you to the door. And then after that is what they think of you and who they, well, who you know and what they think of you. And so it was, I didn't, I learned this very late in my career very late and i fall on my face right because i didn't appreciate the i or the e when i get on when i got sent to charm school right so that taught me the importance of those three letters heavily and where to best use them yeah and then i think this ties in perfectly for your last point your ninth point here which is constantly help others um, yeah i know as i said we met at the supplier diversity conference and I think everyone was there was talking about how supplier diversity made such a big impact on their companies. And then when you got up for your panel, you kind of mentioned how big of an impact it made for the community. And I think people were a little surprised um, that you led with that, but it was definitely yeah. definitely an eye-opening point. You know, uh, Brian, I, I will tell you that um, this stuck with me from when I was in my first freshman industrial engineering class at University of Miami, because I transferred to Texas A&M afterwards. And I remember a teacher telling me, always help somebody else out. And if they don't ask for it, volunteer it. Because guess what? They're going to be loving what you did for them. And they're going to take care of you in the long run if you constantly do that. And while it's easy to say, when you're in business, you tend to maybe sometimes not do it, right? Unless that you're well-natured and that's you know, kind of why, you know, this is where it stems inside my heart. If I reach out to anybody that needs assistance, I mean, I still mentor a lot of J&J people, even though I'm, you know, kind of separate, I'm in a different company and I run my own company a little bit. But it, it's greatest joy to be asked to help somebody or even offer it, right? And that's when you can say, gee, if I were to leave the earth tomorrow, that you make it, you've left it at a better place because you've helped out a bunch of yeah. people right and, and and the big statement for me and i'll leave this as the last statement for me in terms of this, these nine points when i retired i was able to get uh, you know my, uh, the hispanic group really wanted me to you know get, get a party but it was during covid and they said we'll do zoom and i'm like okay i'm not into a, you know a meeting with you know four or five squares and they said no 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 no, no. you need to do this and i think they asked me three times before i said yes so anyway i went 70 people 70 people on a Zoom call. And I started to look at it. These are all the people that I had touched over 10 years. And I will tell you, there were VPs, directors, analysts that were just coming out, out of school. They just brought a tear to my eye. It's like, that is impact, right? When you can actually say, I was able to help all of them somewhere in their career. And you never really get that. At least I've never seen something like it, you know, to, to, but when you're on a Zoom call, it really is because you see all the squares, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is a lot of people. So anyway, it was it was great for me to kind of end my career on, on a super high note from that standpoint. 
And I continue to this day, right? I, um, you know, just because you leave the company doesn't mean you don't continue to try to offer. Because one thing about history, right? They say it, uh, it's never, I, it's never exactly, but it rhymes a lot. And, mm-hmm. and what happens in a big company is pretty consistent because yeah. big companies are big companies and people are people. And the advice you give is not that different over the ages, right? Um, generations change. You know, there's different things that are more impactful. But in general, the basic core is the same. Advice is advice and goals to help people. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Ruben. Uh, we're kind of at time here. Uh, Super. Ruska appreciates you coming. I appreciate you coming uh, to talk to us a lot. I hope everybody heeds your words. Um, and I hope we, um, I know they're trying to plan to get you in person one day to talk to everybody. So I hope that works out. I hope to see you again there. It would be an honor, my friend. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Supply Chain Central. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Rutgers Ruska and follow us on Spotify to know when new episodes are posted. That's a wrap.